This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Last week on Cultivating Place, we spoke with author, historian, and gardener Marta McDowell about her most recent book, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the frontier landscapes that inspired the Little House books, including, of course, Little House on the Prairie. This week, we explore a little more specifically this iconic landscape of the American Midwest, the grassland, prairies, and plains. According to the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas and the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Texas, Tallgrass Prairie once covered between 170 to 250 million acres of North America, making it the largest ecosystem in the country. By 1860, the vast majority was developed and plowed under. Today, less than 4% remains, mostly in the Kansas Flint Hills. We're joined today via Skype by Brad Gurr, Educational Coordinator and Prairie Restoration Specialist for the Dick Arboretum of the Plains at Heston College in Heston, Kansas, to talk more about the prairie and ongoing research and restoration. Welcome, Brad. Thank you, Jennifer. It's nice to be with you. So give us a little bit of history um, and a description. Let's start with a description of the Dick Arboretum, what it looks like, and its mission. The Dick Arboretum is about a 30-acre arboretum that is 36 years old now. We are located on the edge of the small town of Heston, which is about 4,000 Uh, people in population. And when Harold and Evie Dick started this place, they they had in mind uh, that this would be a place where people could come for uh, some solitude, quiet reflection, and to learn about native plant communities of Kansas. Uh, uh, The mission they established and that we've uh, continued to cultivate today is to promote through education and stewardship the conservation and use of plants native and adaptable to Kansas. First of all, orient us in the state of Kansas. Where are you within the state and how close are you to, say, the um, Tallgrass Prairie Preserve? Heston is in south central Kansas and the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve is in the Flint Hills just to the east of us and it's about an hour drive northeast of, of Heston. To give you a little feel for the the plant communities of Kansas, short grass prairie in the western part of the state, mixed grass prairie in the central part of the state, and then tall grass prairie to oak ecosystems in the eastern part of the state. Mm. And we're pretty much just right in the middle of that that mixed prairie ecosystem in the central part of the state. Mm. Um, I've heard that uh, living here is kind of considered the the foothills to the Flint Hills, I guess you could say. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. What is the history of the founders that this would have been important to them? Harold and Evie were entrepreneurs in the in the Heston community, and they liked spending time with their families in green spaces, just like a lot of families do. Mm-hmm. They visited the, the Bartlett Arboretum in Belle Plaine, Kansas, which is about an hour south of, of Heston. Um, just on the other side of Wichita, to give you a little bearing of major cities. The Bartlett Arboretum is now a, a hundred, about over a century, about 110 years old. And 
it was a collection of trees and shrubs and uh, water running through it and ponds and just a, a beautiful place to to find that solace and that kind of connection to to nature. And they wanted to do something like that here in Heston. And they started the Arboretum with that in mind. They uh, followed the, more of the traditional mindset of an Arboretum, which was establishing some plant communities with examples of shrubs and trees, I guess some woody plants, wanting to have that place where people could retreat and, and find that green space here in Heston. And over time, the 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 mission has has adapted to include more of a focus on native plant communities as the caretakers of this place learned that really instead of working against nature, uh, working with nature is much better when it comes to trying to match the, the plants with the, the precipitation that we get here and the, you know, the right soils and all those kind of things. And so when Harold and Evie set this place in, in motion, uh, I think that they were they were wanting to do something that made them happy, that uh, helped kind of also leave a legacy as well uh, for the future. And um, we're very much trying to keep their ideas in mind as we continue to uh, carry out the mission of the Dick Arboretum. And did they have any horticultural background or were they involved in that field? Evie was a homemaker. And Harold worked with Agco. Uh, I think it was at that time called Heston Corporation. And it was uh, a manufacturing entity that produced uh, agricultural equipment, Mm -hmm. combines, uh, hay machines, swathers, things like that. And so I don't believe that they really had much of a background in in horticulture or, or botany or plant ecology they were inspired by having a green space that was a place for reflection and education. And so they hired grounds managers then shortly after establishing and setting aside this place. They then donated the the land to Heston College and created uh, an endowment that helped uh, begin to support this place as well. And, uh, but I would say that they were they were probably employing the people that that had the expertise then that, that that could care for this place. Yeah, and what year what year was that that they, you know, were inspired and then started this process? Nineteen eighty one. Yeah, because it's I think one of the things that really strikes me about this, Brad, is that having grown up in Colorado, um, in the the foothills and and plains there, and then had a lot of experience driving across country to family in Missouri and further east. I've spent a lot of time driving through Kansas in my life. And the <laughs> the agricultural dominance of it is so apparent. You know, I, I think most people get on I-70 and they go through corn and wheat and soybean fields and they think that's Kansas. The sort of foresight of Harold and Evie, even in the agricultural world to see what a beautiful legacy um, and natural resource was part of the Kansas plains and prairies was just it, it was a kind it was ahead of its time in the in the early 1980s and so we have we have a lot to be grateful for on that front and I think that incredible diversity of the different kinds of grasslands and the different 
shades of beauty on a plane are really undersung in our world. But we see little glimmers of it in gardeners and the movement towards meadow landscaping and that kind of prairie style. And this is really the heart of that, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. You explained that quite well. <laughs> the what they did by having that forethought, as you say, to to set aside this place, even though they maybe didn't have the the expertise of knowing how it would be cared for and maintained over time, uh, was was really the the important step to take. Mm -hmm. And the the caretakers and the you know the the journey that this place has been under since they you know started it. Uh, obviously, it it goes a lot in the hands of the people that are taking care of it at the time. But uh, setting forward that process was just an important part of that that you don't often see people take. And that, I think that was a, a, an important part of their legacy. I might add, too, that uh, I tend to put Harold and Evie in the same category uh, in some, some ways of that leaving a legacy of... Uh, of like say what we did celebrate this year uh, with our last year with our 35th anniversary, we um, celebrated the fact that Harold and Abby had this land ethic that they wanted to um, carry out by establishing this place, and having some education in in during my graduate school days in University of Wisconsin and being exposed to the the teachings of Aldo Leopold and the work mm -hmm. that Aldo Leopold did to you know leave a legacy with his work and his education and you know the the iconic uh, stories that were told through his work at at the the shack and and the the book a sand county almanac yeah. Yeah. Um, we practiced or we observed a lot of what Aldo Leopold did and and said and and um, celebrated and put that much in the context of what Harold and Evie did as well. They were I can see them both as um, people that thought about the future and and thought about future generations. and um, that's not something that we see uh, practiced uh, all the time today. No, no. And so to have, little outposts of, of light for it are increasingly important, I think, as as we know. And and I would actually put them, you know, at the level as well of Lady Bird Johnson in Texas and some of the early founders of the California Native Plant Society um, areas that have, again, these iconic landscapes that were sometimes misunderstood and sometimes misused. And um, the more awareness we can bring to them, the better off we all will be. Explain for listeners and me the the nuances between a tall grass prairie, a short grass prairie, and the difference between prairie and plain. Sure. One of the ways to maybe start with explaining those differences between the different types of prairie is to highlight why those different nuances of this plant community are located where they are. And just identifying a, a bit of, of how uh, uh, climate and, and even geology in some ways uh, helps, uh, helps form that, that basis. So Kansas is located 
just east of the of the Rockies of Colorado. And uh, that rain shadow effect that happens when weather systems that are moving across the continental United States from, from west to east generally, as they are affected by the Rockies and uh, end up losing a lot of their, their, their moisture and precipitation as they pass through the Rockies, they have it, it results in this virtual shadow or, or absence of, of rainfall as those weather systems move across the plains. And, and by the plains, I'm talking about more of sort of a, a whole geographic region of the area uh, that is affected by that rain shadow throughout the, the central corridor of the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, so as that, that rain shadow plays out, there is a in Kansas, for instance, about 10 to 15 inches of average rainfall per year in western part of the state. Mm. And as, you know, Gulf air masses and Canadian air masses combine to provide more moisture as you move uh, away from that rain shadow, you you pick up increasingly um, higher bands of precipitation as you move east across the state. So 10 to 15 inches of rainfall in western Kansas more like about 30 to 35 inches of rainfall mm. here in the central part of the state and then upwards of like 45 inches in the eastern part of the state. Wow. And as one might expect, that correlates to the types of vegetation that you would see. Mm -hmm. When you get more rainfall, you get taller vegetation. And so that that gradual um, transition of short grass prairie to, to tall grass prairie as you move from west to east across the state is very well explained by that amount of precipitation that we have. Mm -hmm. And then in the eastern part of the state, the oak ecosystems uh, then start to exert themselves as well as you move towards that Ozark influence. That is one way of helping identify some of the different areas of, of prairie that you find. And then there are some important identifying species that would be associated with those plant communities, like buffalo grass being the main short grass of the of the the western prairies of Kansas and big blue stem being that tall grass prairie part of the eastern part of the state and then little blue stem that intermediate height grass represented in in much of the state then um, in in both those ecosystems I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Brad Gurr, in charge of education and prairie restoration for the Dick Arboretum of the Plains at Heston College in Heston, Kansas. The now 33-acre Arboretum of the Plains was founded by Kansas citizens Evie and Harold Dick, who wanted to give a gift of natural space for solitude and quiet reflection for their hometown creating a sanctuary for humans and for the native plants and landscapes of Kansas, which they loved. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Here's one of the things that's really getting me, moving me about this conversation with Brad Gurr, and that is the power of just one or two impassioned people. The National Tallgrass Prairie Preserve in Kansas and the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Texas and the Aldo Leopold Foundation in Wisconsin, all of which we've mentioned in this conversation, are doing fabulous, amazing work in this world to educate us and provide us passionate plant folk with more resources. These are names you perhaps know, and I'll certainly hope to host episodes with these organizations in time. But Harold and Evie Dick were two ordinary citizens in a tiny agricultural town in central Kansas, and they acted on their love of their native landscapes. 
That inspires me as much as these landscapes do and reminds me of the power and potential of even our small and individual actions in our small and individual gardens and hometowns. Horticultural heroics, which brings me to you. Thank you for listening to Cultivating Place. It's really powerful to me that you're here, participating in this listener-supported public radio podcast. If you're new to the podcast, and there are a whole lot of you in 2018, welcome. My mission here is to illustrate the many ways in which gardens and gardening are integral to our natural and cultural literacy, and to celebrate how these interconnections support the places we cultivate, how they nourish our bodies and feed our spirits. I'm really glad that you're here with me. If you want to stay in closer touch, make sure to head to cultivatingplace.com, where I post a write-up and photos to accompany each week's episode. This week's post will include more information on and photos from the Dick Arboretum, as well as links to some of the other resources mentioned. If your curiosity is piqued by the Aldo Leopold Foundation or the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center, for example, they'll be there. Okay, now back to our conversation on the prairie with Brad Gurr. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from Brad Gurr, restoration ecologist at the Dick Arboretum of the Plains in Heston, Kansas. As Brad indicated, native grasses form the base of the prairie framework, making up upwards of 95% of the vegetation in this ecosystem. The four dominant grass species in the tall grass prairie are the four different bunch grasses, little bluestem, big bluestem, sorgastrum newtons, also known as Indian grass, and switchgrass. Interestingly, they are from four different genera. Additionally, hundreds of species of forbs or broadleaf herbs, which includes the wildflowers, are also an integral part of the prairie, providing the bulk of the species diversity and seasonal color. Welcome back. One of the striking statistics that I read um, in looking at the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve's information, and I believe they have approximately 11,000 acres, and that they indicate that in the state of Kansas, maybe it's not just in the state, maybe it's across the whole region that would have uh, originally been Tallgrass Prairie, um, we only have about 4% left remaining um, after agriculture has established itself across those areas. Is that an accurate number? I've heard numbers from any, it kind of just depends on the geographic area set aside. Uh, You know, I've heard Kansas, I've heard it said that Kansas has maybe as much as 10% of the prairie that it once had Mm. uh, that's identified, you know, mostly in the, the Flint Hills of, of the, the, the east central part of the state. Uh, I've also heard of the, the entire, say, prairie ecosystem that would be throughout the plains and Midwest that, uh, you know, much lower numbers, maybe closer to that, that 4%. Mm-hmm. As you get into some of the eastern um, and um, northern states that had prairie, 
you get down to smaller numbers as one tenth of one percent, you know, in like say Wisconsin and Michigan. Mm -hmm. So kind of depends on the area, but I'd say four percent sounds like a, a definitely a reasonable amount. It's certainly not very much compared to what we used to have here. Right. And one of the reasons for that prairie and grassland ecosystem, they created with their very structure and, and evolutionary adaptation over time, this incredible soil. That's part of why agriculture did so well in those areas. Yeah, the, the legacy left by the prairie uh, for how we have shaped our economy today in Kansas is completely due to that connection that you mentioned. This, uh, you know, this 10,000 year process of soil mm. formation that the prairies have um, been able to uh, set in motion uh, since the last ice age has put us into a position now of having great prosperity through agriculture and is the reason why we can call ourselves the breadbasket of the world today. These are our rich, deep soils that have been created by these 10 to 15 foot deep root systems of the tall grass prairie mm -hmm. or, or prairie ecosystems in general. And that pumping of organic matter into the soil uh, in, you know, in annual cycles, uh, that the biomass above the ground that also is able to work its way into the soil, uh, just uh, creates this, this dark, rich, friable, you know, a horizon that is uh, is just it's uh, it's very loaded with nutrients. It's it's easy to work with, and it it is the the perfect foundation for large scale agriculture, small scale gardening, whatever it is. It it grows plants really well. And of course, to some extent, the agricultural legacy on that soil has been to great extent disruptive and degrading. Yeah, it's the, the very nature of ecosystem dynamics. You have uh, this in, this incredible web of, of life that, that starts with the the producers, the the plants in that system, and uh, you know each each level that consumes the level below it, all those trophic levels, you know from the the plants to to then to the insects and the the small mammals and the amphibians and the reptiles and the birds and the the larger mammals and that, you know, you just build into that complexity of that that whole food web. Uh, is isn't a, a pretty amazing uh, and and resilient ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And yes, we can certainly affect uh, that ecosystem by by taking one or two parts of that out. Um, but uh, you know, it's pretty well understood that the the larger and more diverse that ecosystem is, the more resilient it is to to losing pieces. Mm -hmm. And as you say, uh, once we get down to start to a critical mass where the diversity continues to dwindle, each piece that gets taken out has more and more of a relative impact on that that ecosystem in general. So I think you've highlighted, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the education of the prairie and and an ecosystem like the the the, the Great Plains uh, ecosystem and the, the prairie ecosystems that um, more diversity the the more diversity we can build into these systems the 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 more interesting and resilient and and wonderful that they are and uh, you know that can that lesson can can be placed into to many different levels of understanding as as we look at the the amazing prairie and I think um, you know what comes to mind with what you were just saying is that word diversity because having grown up very close to I was 
definitely in the foothills, but we spent a lot of time on the plains and the prairies in eastern Colorado and, as I say, going across Kansas and Missouri. But when you're driving across it, diversity is not the first thing that comes to mind because it just looks like grassland. I mean, I think that a lot of people treat the plains and the prairie a little bit like they treat the desert of like, oh, it's just grass out there. Sure. But if you stop and you go out in it, right, if you visit it at different times, the incredible diversity of wildflowers and different kinds of grasses and their different heights throughout the year and their different colors throughout the year and then the seed heads in the fall, I think this is what grabs the heart of gardeners and naturalists who get to know this area is that it is incredibly diverse and beautiful. Yes, that that's nicely said. I I like I really enjoy many different ecosystems across the country. We spend much of our summers trying to get away to cooler places out <laughs> in the in the Rockies, and um, I was able to to enjoy a, a, a bit of of California this summer and seeing the the redwoods and the mm. you know the the amazing uh, sequoia forests uh, that you have there, and uh, you know each of these ecosystems certainly is wonderful and and awe-inspiring and and of the latter two like say the mountains and the 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 redwoods uh they have such big features that that inspire awe from from a distance you know mm-hmm. the, the the mountains the big trees um, the prairie is i think just as awe-inspiring mm-hmm. but you have to get closer to it to realize that mm-hmm. um, it's not until you get closer to it that you see those you know, hundreds of species of grasses and wildflowers that uh, um, create that that interesting part of that basis of the food web. And then when you're in there, you get to see the the amazing interaction with the pollinators and the insects that that interact with the grassland uh, ecosystem and uh, all the other animals that are, that are supported in that system. And I like to liken it to often to to the way kids would see things. They they oftentimes are wanting to get up close and personal with uh, with the things that, that attract them. And, and that's why we like to work a lot with kids in looking at the prairie because they have unique perspectives. But uh, once you do get into it and you start to to know the, the, the names with the faces of those different grasses and wildflowers and, and, you know, wildlife species that are there, it becomes just as interesting and awe-inspiring as, as natural areas around the country. I would love to hear a little bit about your history and the earliest influences that grew you into clearly a very knowledgeable and passionate naturalist and plants person. Yeah, I grew up just uh, six miles down the road in Mount Ridge, Kansas, a small town, uh, about 1,500 people, very Probably very monotypic in its uh, in its uh, economic and and uh, cultural diversity, and uh, I didn't know about the prairie and and any of the things that were being touted by places like the Dick Arboretum until I basically got to high school and I was able to land a, 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 an internship, a summer internship here as a mm-hmm. as I think it was a junior or senior in high school, and. Um, but until that point, I knew the Kansas landscape as wheat fields. Mm. You know, most of, of the area around my hometown uh, consisted of just that one uh, land use type. And as I had an internship here at the Arboretum, 
I, uh, I started to, to learn more about the native plants that were that inhabited Kansas for thousands of years. And as I uh, went to, to Bethel College, just down uh, a little further down the road, I, uh, I started to study uh, some, some biology and botany and then took on an internship there at a, at a Kauf museum where it has a small prairie reconstruction, uh, a prairie restoration there, and started to learn a little bit more about it. And that helped shape uh, my, my interest in the outdoors. I also had some influences from my dad to my grandfather to my uncle uh, to getting interested in, say, bird watching and different elements of, of, the, of nature and the outdoors. And then had faculty members in college that helped uh, further that uh, with, with other studies. And so coming out of Bethel College then with an, an environmental studies degree, I, I felt like I had started to dabble in a lot of different things of the interest of, of the outdoors but really had no one particular expertise uh, to, to cultivate that further. Uh, after spending a, a couple of years in, in volunteer service to uh, sort of explore some of the other interests in, in St. Louis, I eventually uh, settled on going to study ecological restoration at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hmm. And uh, that's where I, I really started to focus in on the, the botany and ecology uh, of the landscape. and. Uh, as I had had left, uh, you know, kind of small town central Kansas, uh, I started to appreciate more as I was learning about those that that native ecosystem of place, and and about the prairie that also extended up into Wisconsin, but that uh, you know was a was a main part of the landscape here in Kansas. Uh, wanted to of of feeling a longing to to get connected to that place that I grew up near, but mm -hmm. really didn't know anything about while I was here. Mm -hmm. And uh, both my wife and I having families in the area too, that was that was also part of the draw to come back. But uh, um, that was I think that that longing for a sense of place really was was profound for me uh, to come back to Kansas and and help passionately teach other people about uh, this prairie ecosystem. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Grasslands and prairies are evocative landscapes, sweeping open horizons. The phrase sea of grass speaks to the rhythmic movement of wind, sky, weather, and the rippling grasses in all seasons. Despite having signature plant communities, they are also crucial ecosystems for many of our insects, birds, and mammals who winter or summer in these prairie environments. We'll be right back after a break to speak more with Brad Gurr of the Dick Arboretum of the Plains about their Prairie Window Project, creating a prairie restoration project in central Kansas. Stay with us. Thank you for being with me here today. It's me, Jennifer. Talking with Brad has brought up a great memory I have of epic grasslands and their beauty. As a girl, I went camping with my father, a wildlife biologist, on the Pawnee National Grasslands in northern Colorado. Maybe it was a hunting trip, upland game in the autumn. Maybe he was collecting data, in which case it would have been midsummer. I don't recall that part but it was the first time I'd heard the word grassland prairie specifically applied to a landscape I was experiencing, and it really stuck with me. The big open plain and the summer-colored blue-green grasses extended for miles. You could hear everything. You could see weather forming and hear the slightest wind shh through the grasses. It was beautiful. 
I could hear myself think. I could see very tangibly just how small I was. And it was not scary. It was exhilarating. Do you have landscape memories like this, new or old? If you feel like sharing, send me a note, or better yet, send me voice memo from your smartphone, one minute or less, sharing your memory. If you're not sure how, let me know and I'll walk you through it. Sarah Bohannon, my producer over here at Cultivating Place, and I, we would love to hear your voices. We're at cultivatingplace at gmail.com. If you and I haven't connected yet, Follow the program on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to head to cultivatingplace.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter of seasonal thoughts, events, and requests like your inspirational landscape voice memos. It's a great way for me to hear you. After all, the whole point of Cultivating Place is to have conversations about these things we love and that connect us all. Now, back to our conversation with Brad and his inspirational landscape work on the prairie in Kansas. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Brad Gurr, restoration ecologist at the Dick Arboretum of the Plains in Heston, Kansas. Welcome back. What is your role there at the Dick Arboretum, Brad? I, it started out as the, the the coordinator for ecological restoration. We were uh, starting a process of restoring about 18 acres of prairie here at the Arboretum. And uh, with my background and interest in, in prairie restoration, I embarked on that process with, uh, with the rest of our staff and a number of volunteers and student interns uh, over about a five to eight actually been about eight year process of collecting seed and um, connecting uh, with the landowners uh, in South Central Kansas, uh, close to uh, the Arboretum here within about a 60 mile radius, uh, inventorying the prairies that are out there, collecting seed to understand what these blueprint remnant prairies uh, held, what secrets they held, and then we collected that seed and and planted it here at the Arboretum to, to try to restore uh, that iconic prairie model um, that was a uh, an extension of the the native landscaping that was being shown in more of a horticultural role in uh, the rest of the arboretum so uh, to kind of backtrack a bit to say the in the 35 years that the dick arboretum has been established it's been focusing on more of that horticultural representation of using native plants in the, in the landscape, mm-hmm. uh, in, in landscaping around, you know, our, around our homes, around our schools, our places of worship. And, and so what I embarked on when I came here, uh, was to, uh, help us also show the other end of that native landscaping perspective, which was to create us examples of, of native plant communities as much as you can on, on about 18 acres, mm-hmm. but, but being able to show that that whole spectrum of, of using native plants uh, in and near our urban areas, both in, in more manicult- manicured horticultural ways, but also in, in small prairie restoration area ways as well. So describe for us what we see when we come to the Arboretum. Give us a little bit of a layout and just visually describe these different ways of approaching the interpretive plantings. Sure. 
When you drive in to park in the parking lot at Dick Arboretum of the Plains, you will see our visitor center and, and our Prairie Pavilion, two buildings where we are able to host events and, and host uh, people here uh, at this place. And uh, you're also going to see uh, a mix of, of native plant landscaped beds around these buildings, uh, around the, the half mile a concrete path that that takes you uh, through the different parts of the arboretum, and uh, a whole assortment of of beds and and areas that are are landscaped with the with those particular spaces in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, plants uh, according to their height, uh, according to their blooming time. You know, associating certain plants and assemblages of plants with each other. Uh, to to give a different focus for each one of those beds wherever you are in the arboretum, you know, and uh, the place on the landscape as far as how much moisture that area receives uh, helps us select the plants that are appropriate there. Uh, you know, as I did say, there were some trees and shrubs that were planted early on, and so you know those create micro uh, micro habitats that have a little bit more shade. So we might borrow uh, from some of the more of the eastern Kansas native species mm-hmm. uh, in looking at planting in shaded areas. And um, but anyway, that that first 13 acres that you see will be uh, areas that are are landscaped in more horticultural ways. And then on, as you uh, venture further into the Arboretum, you're going to uh, get towards the, the southern part that, that features that 18 acres of, of restored prairie that is um, you know, getting to be about 10 years old now and wow. starting to look somewhat like a prairie. Yeah. And so you get to feel you know, perhaps what uh, it's like uh, in, a, in a bit of a way to say walk into the Flint Hills and, and see um, more of a, a native plant community in process and, and the ecological diversity that that plant community supports. So those are the kind of ranges of things that you'll see as you're walking around Dick Arboretum of the Plains. That 18 acres of the Prairie Window Project restoration, describe the kinds of species that will be dominant starting in spring and then through the winter. What are the backbone species in there, Brad? We were using the the models of the prairies that we could find closest to this location. Mm-hmm. And we uh, collected seed from um, as early in the growing season as we could, you know, some species that are flowering um, in in even you know late March, early April, uh, there would be a, a number of of small, uh, short statured wildflowers that that would be blooming in the prairie early on, and so we went through a process of of identifying the where those species were in the prairies, making sure that we came back a couple of weeks later when they were setting seed to collect that seed. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to see some of the the cool season grasses that take advantage of the the, the cooler uh, conditions of spring and early summer will assert themselves early on. Species like Canada wild rye or uh, June grass or or needle grass uh, that would be. Uh, doing their life cycle early on and mm-hmm. and starting to show that grass structure that is that is so prominent uh, aesthetically in a prairie. Um, along with then the, the species of wildflowers that are that are coming into their own all throughout that growing season. And, uh, you know, really, once that that process starts in, in early April and, you know, all the way through to the, the end of end of 
October even, uh, of seeing many different wildflower species that will that will bloom and set seed. You know, each one blooming for you know anywhere from a week to to three weeks, depending on the amount of moisture at that current time. Uh, that will that will come up and 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 be a showy part of that prairie at that time. What you're going to see in the the early stages of of the the prairie being showy, starting in you know say late March, early April, you're going to see species like uh, prairie garlic and uh, um, uh, spring beauties uh, coming up in the the these short statured early blooming species, mm-hmm. uh, accompanied by other some some grasses and sedges. You're going to get uh, um, meads sedge. You're going to get uh, June grass. You're going to get needle grass, uh, Canada wild rye, some of those cool season grasses along with the sedges and some of the early wildflowers that are blooming. Mm-hmm. As you move then into the, the later part of spring, early summer, you get uh, uh, some of the, the wildflowers like uh, blue false indigo, uh, you get uh, spiderwort, uh, you get uh, golden alexanders, mm. uh, different, uh, you know, different interesting colors and, and family representations of, of different families of plants, mm-hmm. uh, pollination mechanisms, different heights, uh, just so many interesting uh, features of these different mm. um, prairie wildflowers that will be really colorful earlier in the season. And then you get that time when when the the temperatures really are, are at a higher temperature where the warm season grasses start to, to really thrive. And uh, at that time, many of the prairies have been burned around the region. And so uh, you have uh, that awakening of the warm season grasses hastened by a recently burned landscape that uh, is is black and and. and absorbing that solar radiation really in um, and instigating those warm season grasses to shoot up and warm season grasses like the little blue stem the big blue stem the switch grass the indian grass uh, those grasses really starting to uh, you know take on that that grass form that upright that that very fine textured form that you see uh, so noticeable in the prairie and then some of the, the the some of my favorite wildflowers you get some of the milkweeds uh, like butterfly milkweed and common milkweed coming then uh, you start to see some of the um, a, a whole variety of of forbs that uh, uh, are you know, pleasing pollinators and and aesthetically pleasing humans <laughs> in uh, that uh, that early uh, to to middle part of the summer, and then later on, uh, as the as you get into later part of the summer, when those grasses are are all starting to flower, and uh, start to set seed. You get uh, the the full stature and the, the the height of the prairie, and then many of the the asters, the the wildflowers mm-hmm. from the the sunflower family that uh, that really assert themselves later on in the summer and early fall, uh, become uh, an important uh, identifier of the of the later season prairie, and all that blooming is happening. You get some species starting to senesce and and turn from those blues and greens to uh, reds and browns mm. and uh, that's another really stunning phase of the prairie that uh, you start to see that that color of the chlorophyll going out of the plants as well 
And uh, and then, you know, even once everything is going to sleep in the prairie and then the cold temperature set in, you have all these great textures of those uh, wildflowers, the forbs, the grasses, the sedges, uh, even some of the shrubs, leaving that, that interesting structure that not only is aesthetically interesting, but it also is creating that, it's still maintaining that, that habitat for wildlife. Yeah. So it's really, for me, I don't know that there's a favorite time of the year, but they're all so interesting and diverse and unique, and uh, it's what makes the prairie uh, so, so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And most of the grasses would be perennials, but they reseed themselves quite freely, and most of the wildflowers will be annuals. Is that right? Well, most of the, the grasses and, and wildflowers will be of a perennial nature. Uh, mm-hmm. You will have some uh, annuals that are there in the mix as well. And uh, whenever there is some kind of disturbance, whether it's uh, instigated by wildlife, uh, you know, historically say there'd be a buffalo wallow or maybe there would be, uh, you know, a badger uh, tunnel that uh, is kicking up new soil. You know, those kind of areas where there's new soil and and seeds that have been laying dormant uh, in the, uh, the subsoil, uh, get exposed to sunlight and moisture, uh, that those annual species will then, you know, go through their life cycle and help hold that soil and establish that placeholder uh, until the perennials kind of can reestablish in, in those areas of disturbance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of those uh, annuals would include, uh, you know, like say ragweed. Um, you know, ragweed is a species that obviously produces lots of pollen and lots of seeds. And as that airborne pollen uh, gets out there and it can affect us from an allergy perspective, but it also plays a very ecologically important role in that it, it's holding that soil as, as annuals do so well. And they also produce lots of seeds, which yeah. are an important part of the, the food structure for, for wildlife in the prairie too. Yeah. And the cycle of roaming grazing mammals that you know dig the soil and disturb it and break down some of the biomass as well as the burning how do you replicate that in your prairie window project 18 acres it's not easy <laughs> to uh, it would be I, I would love to be able to establish on our 18 acres a, a grazing bison that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be able to you know, create, uh, you know, intensively graze in, in one area and have that hoof action, you know, replicate what, what happened over, you know, thousands of years uh, to be able to keep that, uh, that, that, dynam- that dynamic process of the prairie, which is always being reset by disturbance. Yeah. You know, if we didn't have the disturbance of, of fire and, and grazers on the prairie, oh, the, the prairie would have been very short-lived. And, uh, you know, we, we get plenty of rainfall here to, to grow trees and, and, and grow woody plants. And it's that, it's that, com- that continually resetting of those uh, disturbance vectors, which helps keep it in prairie. So we obviously can't get bison uh, established on our prairie. And uh, we can introduce fire, uh, and we do so in in a, a cycle of approximately every two to three years that, mm-hmm. that it's thought that that would have naturally happened on the prairie. Uh, but those are those disturbance vectors basically have to be created by prescribed burns and mowers. Uh, we may try to get some a cow or two out there sometime to to help create some of that hoof action mm-hmm. as well. But uh, we haven't quite figured that out yet. <laughs> With the idea that the prairies of the central United States have 
long been misunderstood and sometimes misused, and that they have evolved to become these iconic landscapes for ecologists and naturalists and, and in many ways gardeners. What, in your opinion, are some of the lessons that we can learn from the Prairie Window Project, no matter where we live, even if we can't have a prairie in our backyard? Yeah, I think having places to be able to visit and to see the the native ecosystem that would have existed in this space when it was left to its own natural processes is something that is very important to um, not only conserving uh, some of these ecosystems for the sake of biological diversity, but also we can see it as, as a way of helping conserve human health. And uh, we can help see it uh, conserve um, what is important to us culturally in a place and developing a sense of place. Uh, as far as like say the you know ecosystem functions, you know, a, a prairie provides so many Im important and sometimes forgotten uh, services of, of helping filter stormwater on the landscape and, and helping, you know, refresh the, the, the air that we breathe. And so, you know, some of those very concepts are, are important to, to human health. You know, thinking about uh, the, the animals and, and the, the parts of that uh, biological diversity can be represented in, in the grazers, uh, you know, if for those of us that are human con carnivores and omnivores to be able to, you know, um, to eat the animals that, that come off of that grassland. It's, it's, a, it's a big part of what happens uh, on the plains and, and, and to, to help establish our economy here as well. Uh, you know, thinking about how, you know, all the, the pollinators that are supported by the, the natural plant communities mm -hmm. here in this place and, and how those pollinators affect uh, other aspects of the food we eat. You know, the, uh, our crops, our, our fruits, our vegetables, our nuts. If it wasn't for, for you know, native pollinators that are, are supported and, and, and that thrive in, say, the native prairie, uh, you know, we would lose some of those ecosystem functions uh, too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the prairie, it, it may not seem quite so obvious as it did to say early settlers or, you know, Native Americans before them uh, that absolutely lived on the prairie for survival. You know, the, the prairie was their, uh, it was their grocery store. It was their hardware store. It was their pharmacy. And even though we're somewhat removed from that um, that direct link of, of survival uh, through um, uh, through you know development and and you know some affluence to be able to to help us live a lot more comfortable lifestyle and not have to be hunters and gatherers, uh, we still uh, in so, in more subtle ways rely on the the ecosystem functions that mm. that that prairies provide, and. Uh, you know, and, and that's not even addressing the importance of, you know, some of the, the cultural history that that is about this place and thinking, you know, how how we as humans have, have interacted with with each other in the landscape. And, you know, with each successive generation, we get more and more removed from the, the natural areas and the, and the outdoors around us, unfortunately. 
but being able to have these examples of uh, these native ecosystems to 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 visit and and connect to a green space and to be able to learn about the the native plants and the native animals uh, that were there and to be able to understand for why those resources were so important to earlier generations of humans that lived here you know, not only makes the prairie important from a, a natural history perspective, but a cultural history perspective as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and and for me, that's what a lot about a sense of place is for, for living in any one area. And that's what a sense of place is for me here in Kansas. Is there anything else you would like to add? I guess I would just like to add that... Uh, I encourage all your listeners out there to to be inspired by the natural areas around you and and take the time to to get to know them and to to understand them even if it's on just a, a very simple level you know understand the, the the ways that that these ecosystems are Im- important to our our physical and our emotional and our spiritual health and and plan to help pass along that interest to someone else, you know, whether it's the next generation or whether it's two generations after us, you know, I hear people over and over, uh, become connected to a place like the Dick Arboretum because they have a longing for what they knew as a child. And, uh, you know, if, if we keep seeing the increasing decline of, of connection to place and connection to, to natural areas uh, tend to happen in our society as, as we seem to be seeing. Uh, it would be really tragic, you know, not only for the, the, the change in quality of life that, that younger generations or future generations will live, but also in the loss of knowledge uh, about these natural areas. For instance, who's going to take care of these, these places if we don't have the the, the 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 people that that understand them and have a passion for taking care of them mm-hmm. and if we all of a sudden lost these green spaces that that we that exist in our our city our county our state parks our, our national parks then uh, then we're really we're really losing i think what is a a, a jewel and and one of the, the resources that a place like you know the united states still has great examples of, of these kind of natural areas mm-hmm. um, in which we can learn about and, and play in and study and and uh, and benefit from. So I think passing that on to the next generation, you know, get involved in programs, uh, your local, uh, you know, education um, organizations that, that do these things. There are a number of them out there. And you know, uh, for instance, for us, that Earth Partnership for Schools program where we train teachers to restore prairie gardens on school grounds and have those teachers reach kids with, uh, you know, project-based learning that gets them outdoors and, and learning about the, uh, the native places around them. You know, there are so many great programs like that out there. So get involved with those and, and pass those along to the next generation. Thank you very much for being a guest on Cultivating Place today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Brad. You're welcome. I really enjoyed this conversation. Brad Gurr is the Education Coordinator and Prairie Restoration Specialist on staff at the Dick Arboretum of the Plains, part of Heston College in Heston, Kansas, where he helps manifest the dreams of Harold and Evie Dick. Natives of Kansas, Harold and Evie were inspired by their love of the Kansas landscapes to create the Public Garden Sanctuary for the benefit and education of people 
and for the preservation of native plants of Kansas. The Dick Arboretum today is a 33-acre interpretive center demonstrating climate-appropriate horticultural uses of native plants of the prairies and plains and an 18-acre prairie window project. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you would like to see some lovely images of the tall grass prairie, of the Dick Arboretum and their work, head on over to cultivatingplace.com and make sure to hit that button subscribing to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust and by you, our listeners. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.